So I have a confession to make. A few weeks ago, I watched the season finale of The Bachelor. <laughs> Anyone else want to confess? Okay, good. I, at least part of it. I, I couldn't handle all two days and four hours of it. Um, but my nerdy take uh, on it is that it's a rather strange and fascinating and sometimes cruel social experiment that is, is it's interesting in, in all kinds of, of ways. And my guess is that it'll, it'll just keep happening as long as they're making money, right? Which is perhaps why they, they spend so much time, time trying to convince us that this season, whatever season it is, is the craziest season yet. Or that this finale is the most dramatic and shocking finale yet. But it works. And they let you know that it works because they will pause in the middle of their show many times and say, thanks to all of you watching, The Bachelor, or if it's The Bachelorette, is trending number one worldwide on social media. How nice. I mean, it's, it's so nice to be a part of something so globally significant, isn't it? <laughs> well, obviously, reality television didn't invent the concept of relational drama. Reality television didn't, isn't the first group or, or first thing to use sex as a way of like drawing attention. From the beginning of time, our ancient stories and now our modern stories turn to all of these same themes. So, this week, in the book of Ruth, the most dramatic and shocking chapter yet. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, well, first, a recap. A short recap. The story of Ruth is a response to an anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner movement 2,000 years ago. So the main character, Ruth, stands out in this time as the most infamous of foreigners, a woman from Moab. But as we've seen, Ruth challenges our prejudice by repeatedly reflecting God's character, repeatedly reflecting God's faithful love and care, specifically toward her mother-in-law, who was vulnerable. Which is why last week she was out in a field picking up leftover grains so that she could feed herself, so that she could feed her mother-in-law. But this is no long-term solution, so Naomi comes up with a new and radical plan, which brings us to chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. So Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, the man who owns the field that she was picking up grain in, with whose women you have worked, is a family guardian of ours, which is this sort of ancient concept of, of, of somebody who is a part of our family or our community who's there to take care of those who are most vulnerable, usually those who are orphaned or widowed or strangers from, from the outside. Naomi says to Ruth, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. They've just finished a harvest. Wash and perfume yourself. And put on your best clothes. Seems sort of a strange thing to do going down to the barn. <laughs> then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he lies down. 
Then go toward him and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. All right. So Ruth said, I will do whatever you say. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and she laid down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? Or, who are you? I don't know what the, what the tone is exactly of, of the story, but he, he's a little confused. I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a family guardian or a redeemer. Boaz said, the Lord bless you. This kindness that you have shown is greater than that which you have shown earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a family guardian, there is another who is close, more closely related than I. So stay here. So there's a, a second, a second um, bachelor involved, I guess. So stay here for the night, and in the morning, if, you, um, if he wants to do his duty as the family guardian, good, then, then let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie down here until morning. No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So she laid down at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. Boaz filled her shawl with six measures of barley, put it on her back, and she returned home. And then she told Naomi, her mother-in-law, everything that Boaz had done for her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Naomi and Ruth have staged a rather provocative scene, especially for this time and place 2,000 years ago, a scene that once again will reveal the prejudice and expectations of those reading the story or hearing the story. See, I knew it. Ruth is the villain of this story. We have to remember that this anti-immigration movement started after the people then read old stories in the Bible about the sins of the people of Moab. In particular, the women of Moab who seduced the men of Israel and turned them away from God, because obviously you can't blame the men for that. <laughs> that, that was sarcasm, just in case I was... <laughs> so... Um, so this is strange, because the whole story, the whole time that, that they've been telling this story, they've gone to incredible lengths to highlight just how different Ruth is from those stereotypes. But now, she is playing right into all the fears that everyone had about her in the first place. She'll seduce our men and turn them away from God. Notice how provocative this seems to be. Put on your best clothes and perfume. Wait till he's had some alcohol and is in good spirits. Then when it's dark and when he's alone, uncover his feet, whatever that means, and lie down with him. 
And just in case we miss the plot of this story, the most repeated verbs in this chapter are to lie down, which is repeated many times, and to know, which could be just to lie down, and it could just be to know some information about something or someone, but these are also biblical euphemisms for sex. Lying together is sort of like sleeping together. I mean, were they really sleeping? And in the book of Genesis, thank you, Kent. <laughs> and in the book of Genesis, we're told that, that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and had a son. It seems like this story was scripted for reality television. In a similar way, Jesus is staging a rather provocative scene of his own on Palm Sunday, a scene that will reveal our prejudice and our violent expectations. Jesus enters Jerusalem like a strong military general. Jesus enters Jerusalem like a king. This very week, the Roman leader, Pilate, will enter Jerusalem in a very similar way, with a show of strength riding on a war horse. See, I knew it. For all his talk of love and justice and nonviolence, Jesus is actually our long-expected military leader, a king like David who killed thousands upon thousands. Jesus is coming to lead a violent revolution against the outsider, against those who are not like us. The anticipation rises as the story is told on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives, which, tra which religious tradition tells us is the direction from which God will come to destroy our enemies. Jesus is riding on a donkey, which, which isn't a war horse, but it's close enough for all of us who are really wanting war. This is the moment when God will unleash his wrath the moment when all the people will join Jesus in an armed revolt. This is it. Wait, what's Jesus doing? Is he, is he crying? Someone should tell him that our heroes don't cry. But Jesus isn't one of our Hollywood heroes. He looks at this city and he looks out at all the people, no doubt from all over the world, who are here for this feast and the celebration. He weeps and he says, if only, if only you recognized on this day the things that make for peace. So not violence, not the threat of God's violence that makes us and our world better. But that's not really what we want. So spoiler alert, later this week they will arrest Jesus and they will kill him. The one thing most people agree on in this world where we, we disagree on basically everything else, the one thing we agree on is that our violence is good. Our violence is okay. Even today, our politicians can't agree on anything except when it comes to passing like a, a three-quarter trillion dollar budget on the military. That's a bipartisan move, right? Our violence is good. 
So what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday is really like satire. Certainly there were people there who saw dark, the dark humor in Jesus riding on a donkey. Isn't that supposed to be a war horse? But it's like Daisy? Is that who he was riding? <laughs> Maybe they would remember that the prophet Zechariah, as Peter had said, imagined a future king who would come riding on a donkey. A king who would reject violence and instead proclaim peace. And not just peace for us, but peace to the nations, peace for everyone. But that's not what we wanted. Because in order to be in control, in order for, for our life to feel stable, we need to divide our world into us versus them so we have a sense of control. And instead of seeing those people in their fullness, instead of seeing our enemies in their fullness, we have to ignore their, their humanity. We have to ignore our common humanity, the ways that we're alike, and see only our differences, and see only the ways that they are wrong. Our good violence requires that we see our enemy as not fully human. We can't be violent if we see them as anything like us. So, Naomi's plan also seems to be satire. Satire that mocks a religious world that will kill a woman for having sex outside of marriage but thinks nothing of it if a man does it. Ruth hasn't conformed to our expectations about how a foreign woman will behave this entire story. But in this chapter, neither is she conforming to the religious or cultural expectations of her new home. Instead, she is like other biblical heroes, Tamar, who in the pursuit of justice pretended to be a prostitute, but then was declared more righteous. She is like Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who rescued the Israelite spies and became the hero of her own story. She is a powerful, capable woman in pursuit of justice who doesn't need to wait for a man to act. But that's not necessarily what our world wants. That's not what our masculine religious world really wants. So in her essay, The Power of the Erotic, this is, this is where all of you who weren't paying attention sort of like, <laughs> wait, what did he just say? The Power of the Erotic, Audre Lorde, says that the erotic comes from the Greek word for eros, which is love in all of its aspects. In other words, it's a love that embodies the fullness of who we are. It's a, it's a love that connects to every part of life. It's a love that's not just confined to the bedroom. But in our masculine religious world, we have to distort the erotic. We have to suppress this kind of love in order to maintain control. So, on the one hand, the, er the erotic is reduced to something like pornography that is interested in a body, but a body that's disconnected from our hearts, from our mind, and from our soul. But that's not what erotic really is. But at the other end of the spectrum, religious purity culture elevates spirituality and good character that is disconnected from the body. It's disconnected from our powerful emotions and our desires. 
But in between these two extremes, in between these two extreme versions of our disconnected humanity is this wider range of fullness. This wider range of fullness where we will find Ruth. And any one of us who are learning in little ways or in big ways to embrace and to love the whole of who we are, to not have to suppress parts of us because we're ashamed or other people are ashamed of it, to embrace the fullness of who we are, body, mind, heart, and soul, the physical the intellectual, the emotional, the relational, and the spiritual, all deeply connected, all equally valuable. But we don't want Ruth to be that powerful. So those of us who are afraid of her see her only as the foreigner, the Moabite woman who's from Moab, the villain of our story. But even for those of us who embrace Ruth, find it hard to accept her in all of her provocative power. We Christians love to read this story and focus on Ruth saying to Naomi that your God will be my God. In a way, we can accept Ruth because she changes and becomes more like us, right? Look, now she's a, a, a good Christian white woman who, who always brings her famous potato salad to the potluck, right? She's exactly who we want her to be. And we fail to see the fullness of her humanity. Yes, she is like us, but she's also from Moab. She is still from another time. She's still from another place and another culture. She is also not like us. She is faithful, but she's faithful in a very Moab way. She has not abandoned a part of herself in order to belong. But regardless of how we feel about all of this, she, throughout this story, embodies a deeper and more connected expression of love. She's not afraid of her body. She's not afraid of her emotions. She's not afraid to speak her mind. And she's not afraid of a spirituality that is shaped and can be transformed by relationships with people who are different than her. And on this Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem inviting us into a deeper and more connected experience of love. Love for our neighbor and love for our enemy. Love for those who are like us and love for those who are not like us. Ruth and Jesus are inviting us into a deeper, more connected experience of love. But next week, I think next week, Boaz isn't the only available bachelor, it seems. So next week, the craziest finale yet. It'll blow your mind, <laughs> or whatever it is that they say. Will it be Boaz? Will it be this mystery man? We, we, we don't know. But whatever it is, this story is, is not allowing us just to sort of enjoy the status quo, is it? This is not a story that allows any of us to enjoy the status quo. It's inviting us into something deeper and more provocative and more connected. A love that is real. Please pray with me. 
Jesus, thank you for loving the whole of us. Thank you for loving the whole of our world. We pray that you would draw us into this deeper sense of connection, this deeper sense of fullness that we find in you, that we find in community with one another, that we find within this massively beautiful and diverse world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.